open up your books, you bad apples. Hello, everyone. This is the Bad Apple Book Club. I'm Lucas Nord. And I'm Cole Lang. And we're back again with our third, count them, third, um, 19th century tale of horror. Um, not only just some very, uh, you know, old horror in general, but also stuff that really, as, uh, as I read more of it, uh, we can see paving the way for modern horror before our very eyes. You know, we talked about it a little bit in the last episode with Stephen King, you know, being very inspired by it, but it's pretty interesting to see the stepping stones for what I love so much today in the film and book genre. Yep, we're gonna, we hope you guys like ghosts. Well, and if you don't like ghosts, you're gonna have to ghost this episode. Leave it on red. Yep, uh, it's a little spooky. Pa- yep, pause right here because yeah, we're, we're gonna send some shivers down your spine. We're talking about one. season two of The Haunting of Hill House. Th- this book, uh, it, 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 it's adapted by Netflix. I, I think there's going to be some big differences, not all the way through the book yet, but I think there's going to be some big differences uh, between that and the show. So, Did you watch that? Yeah. I did. I did watch uh, the second season. like the first season a little bit more, but uh, I, I think the this book will be a little bit more interesting. It's more mysterious and a lot more ambiguous, I think. Was it modernized um, when it was put to the silver screen? Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yep, it's not set in this this old-timey thing. Um, It's set in, like, the mid-1900s, I think. Oh, okay. Um, Well, if I didn't know any better, you might have a little bit to say about our main man, the author Henry James before we dive into the first part here oh yeah Henry James gotta love him uh, he, he was born in New York City on April 15th 1843 he was raised by a pretty well-off family and they would often travel to Europe and you know once the funds got low they would return back to America so they can uh, continue their fun. Yeah, he visited like Paris, uh, England, Geneva. So, you Ooh. Know, the stomping grounds of where Ma- Mary Shelley was. So that's uh, that's kind of fun. That is kind of fun. Yep. Also kind of fun. Two first names. Yep. When he turned nineteen, he attended Harvard Law School, but. You know, he has this creative mind, you know. He, he doesn't want to study the bird law anymore. Uh, he decides to be, start his career as a playwright. Uh, and this doesn't work out. He always wants to be like this playwright. But we'll see time and time again, uh, it, it just doesn't work out. And people like his books a lot more than they like his plays. That sounds kind of familiar. Wait, who, who was that? Um, well, the first guy that comes to mind that we've covered would be our man, Anthony Burgess. 
Oh, yeah. Wanted yep. to be more known as a composer than an author, and then just accidentally made a legacy with one of my favorite books, A Clockwork Orange. That was a fun one. Anthony yeah. Bur- Burgess, he, uh, yeah, he just wanted to be known for his music, not the terrible book. Uh, well, he didn't like the book <laughs> after the movie was released because, uh, you know, everyone hated him and thought he was Very creating, horror like, a- show. Yeah, two horror show, if you ask me. Yeah. But uh, Henry James, he created, like, a lot of literature that, like, brought about the differences between Americans living in England and uh, vice versa, like, their their cultures. Because he he was born in America, but... Uh, he, he just really loved England, and he eventually lived there. So uh, he, he would often compare, like, the old world, which is Europe, to the new world. And, yeah, he wrote about that a lot. So and we'll kind of see that with this book, but it's kind of funny because uh, a lot of English critics at the time were like, yeah, this isn't how English people lived. <laughs> like, it was probably <laughs> just filled with stereotypes. Uh, Lots of tea, I don't know. Um, Maybe. As time went on, his novels became more and more complicated, and he even met up with uh, Robert Stevenson, um, the author of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Wow. And they became pretty good friends. Um, And I'm sure Robert Stevenson... uh, made him get into horror a little bit because uh yeah his his books were henry james his books were well they're still known as like pretty heavy on psychology uh as we mentioned in the last book this was just really starting to kick off because uh this was the time of uh sigmund freud and he also wrote on feminism an interesting thing is a lot of his books are, I would say a majority of his books are written from a female point of view. Ah. Um, which this is one interesting. is. Yep. Yep. The governess. Um, and he, he, he lived a pretty closeted life. Um, it's, he died as a bachelor, but nobody really knows, uh, you know, what his sexual preference was, but there's hints that he could have been gay, but that's ambiguous too. This is the most ambiguous man alive. Uh, well dead. <laughs> ambiguous in life and ambiguous in his craft, as we'll see. Yep. Yep. Lots of ambiguity. Ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so he uh, was pro-feminist and uh, eventually he wrote a ghost story. And, well, it just happens to be this one. So, The Turn of the Screw. Before we even talk about it, actually, I just want to mention how cool the title is. That's really what caught my eye. Like I said, I was just interested in covering some more old horror when I um, picked this book to cover. And I was just scrolling through the list of whatever, the top ten 19th century horror novels and I just saw the one the turn of the screw and I thought what am I supposed to even take away from that title in the first place <laughs> this is a uh, carpentry horror 
Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's actually that's the most interesting part about it. Um, the title is actually used in like the first line of the book too, and that really still didn't tell me much. But you know, yeah. that's all right. Yeah, maybe once we're done with this thing, we'll uh, just figure it say. out. Right. Maybe like the walls are not sixteen on center in this house in this Ooh, mansion. <laughs> now that's a horror story. Now that's a callback to shop class wood shop. Um, Woof. <laughs> yeah, they're probably 15, <laughs> fifteen and a quarter on center. Oh yeah. Uh, yep, and you, just not a stable wall. <laughs> that that is very scary. Yeah, it is. <sighs> yep. Structural integrity is important, people. <laughs> Yep. Yep. We're all about structural integrity. Yep. Gotta have um, it. So, uh, yeah, he decides to write this ghost story because he's having some pretty good success with his novels, and but sometimes he's like in this in these boom and bust cycles. So he'll put out a good novel, and then the next one will be just. T- torn apart by critics and uh what do they so, know yeah they don't know nothing uh as stephen king would say uh all my critics are dead so <laughs> <laughs> uh i've outlived my critics um henry james he decides to get back into the playmaking business and this doesn't go so well. It actually goes very terrible, and he's booed off stage. The whole play was booed, and uh, of course, this just kind of th- this really impacted him in a negative way. And after this, he also experienced the death of his sister, and this was around the time that his friend Robert Stevenson died. Ouch. So this is a very dark time for him. And he said during this time, quote, I see ghosts everywhere. Yeah. So. More, more tales of horror steeped in a tragic life, you know, just like Mary Shelley. Yep. Yep. He, uh, it, it's not the most interesting life, but there's like, uh, there's a few tidbits that are just kind of dark and like, uh, and also he uh he hears like this ghost story um from this butler out in this countryside mansion uh <laughs> that uh oh. yep we have, this might be a little bit inspiration but the butler wow. basically says uh, uh yeah that there was some kids here and they're haunted by um the previous servants like so it's two kids it's basically the plot of this book um and like we said if you if you've seen the second season of uh hill house or bly manor haunting of bly manor it's based off of this book so it might sound pretty familiar uh but i think it's going to turn out quite different and uh he was also interested in the paranormal because this was during the time Ooh. where um uh do you, have you heard of the fox sisters i have not uh well i guess they're kind of like the first like people to claim that they're medium me, mediums Ooh. uh and they Spooky. lived in america 
Yep, so this was a time when the paranormal was like really starting to gain traction and him and his brother were part of this uh, paranormal uh, society called the Society of Physical Research and they're, they're just trying to get to the bottom of what's going on with all these ghosts that keep popping up. So his brother was even the president for a little bit. So they they're big ghost boys. Wow. And um, uh, let me just say too, um, with how much we've seen, such large parts of um, authors' lives be taken and being completely adapted into the story, like you were just saying. Um, this guy heard a story from a butler about. The previous servants haunting children, which is obviously, as we'll talk about, a big part of the book. And, like, um, J.D. Salinger being, like, a angsty teenager and stuff like that, which he pretty much completely translated into Holden. I'm going to be disappointed if, by the time we get to Dracula, Bram Stoker wasn't, like, a, a nocturnal bloodsucker or something like that, you know? Yeah, if he's not sucking people's blood... Uh... I'm just gonna, we're just gonna cancel it, you know, we, we yep. got that book planned, but, you know, we're just gonna, if he, if he doesn't have, you know, the, the background's gotta match the, the story, so, I mean, that's why I'm wondering with Stephen King, like, was he really a high schooler that had a period during prom, I don't know. Ooh, that would uh, be embarrassing. Yep, so where is he getting these experiences from? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it, it is interesting to see all, all of these uh, origins of horror. And uh, with all this combined, he, uh, he wrote Turn of the Screw, one of the most popular and uh, ambiguous ghost stories of the late 1800s, so... Um, yeah, there's gonna, even I don't know what's going on. <laughs> like, mm. there, the, there's so much, uh, interpretation of what, uh, this book is. It, it could be feminism. It could be just a really good ghost story. Uh, we'll, we'll just have to talk about it. And, uh, like I said, he received a lot of critis- criticism during his time. Uh, but he gained, like, this renowned popularity uh or renewed popularity during the mid 1900s like we've kind of seen like with uh robert stevenson and uh he he was very famous for using in-depth first person point of view like really diving into the thoughts of uh his main characters and uh we'll see it time and time again that he uses lengthy and very difficult sentences mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and eventually he passed away in 1916 so yeah pretty pretty interesting life uh dabbling in the paranormal and uh profiting off of it so good for him very nice oh yeah were you ready to get into this spooky tale then oh yeah i'm uh i've i've prepared myself mentally to take on the horror Yep, yep. Wonderful. Yep. Um, alrighty, well, starting off, just like our last two stories, there's like a beginning preface. Instead of just getting right to the meat of the story, just like how 
Frankenstein started off with um, Robert Walton sending letters to his sister and how Jekyll and Hyde started with Utterson out walking before he, you know, gets right to the story. They start off with someone, like, telling a story about the story in the first place, which I just thought's been a pretty interesting theme that's continued through, like I said, our, our three stories up to this point out of the three that we've covered most recently. And the turn of the screw starts off with a group telling ghost stories. Um, The party's particularly infatuated with the most previous story told involving a ghost visiting a child when a man named Douglas says he's got an even better story. Because guess what, baby? His story doesn't involve a ghost haunting one child. It involves a ghost haunting two children. And double whammy. Double whammy. And ghosts and horror, ghosts and horror obviously go hand in hand, but ghosts and children in horror also go hand in hand. We think of the exorcist, we think of poltergeist, um, you know, sometimes uh, some people may say that children are even a little more susceptible, that they can see more of that stuff just because their mind hasn't been convoluted with old age at that point and stuff like that. Um, It's all, you know... It all comes down to whatever you think, but um, it's even particularly spooky just hearing a child say something like that, too. You know what I mean? Like, in Poltergeist, when she's sitting in front of the staticky TV and she goes, they're here, it's mm. just, uh, hits different. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting with this book, because, yeah, usually with horror, it's like the kids see something, and then they try to tell the parents, oh, oh, I saw a ghost the other day, and then the parents are like, oh, you're so silly, but with this book, it's the governess that's seeing the ghosts, and we're just kind of questioning: Is she seeing this, or are the are are these things not real and part of her um, own uh, like mental visions? So, yeah, we'll we'll find out. But I, I mean, like telling ghost stories that had to been like the version of like scrolling through facebook or like scrolling through tiktok these days because i mean we see it saw it with mary shelley and uh here where it just seems to be like a source of entertainment to try to scare each other as much as uh possible right um for one that's another really good way that horror and children go hand in hand is the idea that parents will just dismiss whatever their child says even if they don't actually know what the child saw. And yeah, um, that actually reminds me of something kind of interesting is I guess back in the day, way back in the day, it used to actually be the go-to was to tell horror stories on like Christmas Eve. That used to just like be part of the holiday tradition. And hey, I'm just going to say right now, bring it back. Yeah. I love ghost stories. Yeah, that sounds pretty fun. It does sound like fun. Um, of course, Douglas can't actually begin telling the story right then because even though he psychs everyone up for it, he's like, as much as I would love to, I need to get the manuscript it was written down on because I didn't even take time to remember the whole thing, so I just need my butler to go grab it. 
Um, I've had a bit too much gin. Memory's a little hazy. Uh, Memory's a little hazy. My sister's governess actually wrote it down. And just between me and this room full of people, I had a little bit of a crush on that governess. But uh, don't tell anyone. It takes them like three hours to ride a carriage back to his place he's like all right just uh i'll be back in six hours uh yep. we'll we'll get this ghost gets, story cracking he gets back and it's six in the morning and it's like man i really wanted to hear this story but i did not think it would take you six hours to come and go you know what i mean everyone's sleeping he's just like slapping pans he's like wake up come on <laughs> i have my manuscript <laughs> Sometime uh, later, Douglas receives the manuscript, uh, which is handwritten, and it has the entire encounter on it, being that of a 20-year-old woman who had just finished her education. This is who we referred to earlier as the governess. She's the main character of our story, and she does not have a name. She's only referred to as the governess, which is a title I was not even aware of until reading this book, but she's... uh pretty much just keeping an eye on this house and as we'll see keeping an eye on these little orphan children that live in this giant house yeah it's like a a step above a nanny somehow um you're over you're not only watching the kids but you're watching the estate the estate more responsibilities uh, Taking out an ad for the job of being governess, she comes to find out it entails watching the two orphans I just talked about being a boy and a girl in a large estate, the Bly Manor, in the middle of nowhere pretty much, and being employed by a handsome young bachelor who was responsible for the children, and he's like, if you're going to take up this job, you have to take care of everything yourself, and... If you gotta, uh, how's that saying go? If you gotta get in touch with me, don't get in touch with me. I'm butchering yeah. it, but, you know, that's pretty much exactly what he says. He's like, if you got any problems, deal with them yourself, because that's what I'm paying you for. Yeah. Oh, that's and what it is. If you need me, don't need me. <laughs> yep. Um, and if you're... So we'll, we'll dive more into it throughout the book. Um, and if you're trying to see this from like a feminist point of view this this relationship between her and uh this this young bachelor who's very handsome and she's got a little crush on him uh it's gonna be very important to note that yeah she's uh she she likes this man she uh thinks he's very hot he might be The governess's first day on the job entails meeting the housekeeper, Mrs. Gross, and the younger of the two children being a charming and cute girl named Flora. While in her room that night, the governess thinks she hears, quote-unquote, faint and far, the cry of a child. But optimistic and confident that she'll be able to teach and um, shape the young children that she'll be watching over, she doesn't even worry about it. But... That is not a great start, I wouldn't say. That sounds like a troubling start, to be completely honest with you. But, I mean, yeah. what do I know? Yeah, she, uh... We'll kind of see this. Um, she, she sees some, like, warning signs, and she doesn't really investigate further. Like, we'll see we'll see further um, that she just kind of... She, she has a very optimistic 
point of view where she's like, I, I, everything's going to be okay. I'm definitely not going to go crazy by this house and uh, by their children. Optimism is nice, but um, it can obviously be up to a fault like anything else. Yeah, if you hear that baby crying, just go out and uh, find that baby. <laughs> just look for the baby. Yeah, come on. The governess is informed by Miss Gross that the boy is to return in a few days and decides that um, her and Flora, being the um, girl, will both meet him. And the next day, Flora shows the governess around Bly with delight, showing, quote-unquote, empty chambers and dull corridors on crooked staircases. Though the governess herself finds the place ugly and dizzying, comparing it to a drifting ship of which she is at the helm. Yeah. Um, really cool wording there. Empty chambers and dull corridors on crooked staircases. Um, as far as we know, uh, and as far as I am in the book, it's going to be the governess, Mrs. Gross, the maid, and the two children in this giant house, which obviously sounds exciting to people, I guess. Everyone likes the idea of having a big old mansion or whatever. But um, having all that space with so few people would not only make it feel more empty than a smaller space, but also just a lot spookier. And this place sounds pretty old, too. Um, yeah. Empty chambers, dull corridors on crooked staircases. Yeah, I think it's more of a... Like living among a, among an antique store, you know, it's just it, it's not really meant to be lived in comfortably. And she's like, "Yeah, this is a very beautiful place, but I don't really want to live here." Oh, <laughs> and, out in the uh, middle of nowhere, too. Yep, and it's interesting how she like compares her current state of mind to like a drifting ship of what she's at the helm but she has no control of she's just like yeah i'm in this ship that's kind of lost at sea right now oh, but it's God. gonna be okay yep yeah. it's, everything's <laughs> gonna be completely fine yeah <sighs> the pair drives out to meet miles together but the governess reminisces on a troubling letter she received the first day it's going to get a little confusing here but as they're on their way she thinks about the letter telling her Okay, she received the letter the first day showing up at Bly, and the letter tells her that Miles, the older of the children and the boy, will not be allowed back at the school after this little break that he's being sent home from. And fearing that the child may be a troublemaker, the governess presses Miss Gross for information on the child, who swears she can't imagine any reason for the boy's expulsion, even though um, the governess can sense a little tension coming out of Mrs. Gross at this point. Not satisfied with her answer, she questions her once again later, and is told the boy was known to occasionally cause a little trouble. Raise a little uh, hell, baby. Yep. And the governess questions her one more time before leaving to actually pick him up, and this time... She inquires on the previous governess, who she learns had left Bly and died mysteriously. Um, yeah. Wasn't even sick or anything when she left. Mrs. Gross says she just left on a little bit of a holiday and then just kind of like died or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then she's like, all right, that's the end of the conversation. Yep. Uh, Can we just but, drop this already? Yeah. What? Are you afraid that you're going to die here? <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, 
Yeah, the the incident with Miles is pretty interesting because, um, I mean, there's like a lot. There, there's so much like subtle cues, um, and we'll get into it uh, pretty soon here. But it, like Miles, he had to do something like pretty bad, and uh, we're not in. We we just don't know what it is. But there there are hints that it could have been like something involved with. Uh, sex uh and we'll see that um we'll see that that he's had experiences that could have involved sex with the uh previous servant so uh we just don't know um and that's just that's just old henry uh just leaving this up in the air for us to make a decision on but it had to have been really bad because yeah this teacher uh at this boarding boarding school is just not taking miles back and instead of like interviewing this teacher the governess is just kind of like uh miles had a little slip up i'm not even gonna get involved so yeah he's not known to cause trouble even though i've only asked this um made you know two times and she's given me the answers i wanted to hear pretty much and she's satisfied hearing well, yeah, maybe he's, like, broken a vase or two here and there, but otherwise he's a perfect child. She's just completely fine. Oh, okay, well, you know, whatever. It's just a vase. <laughs> We're going to be fine here. Just me alone with these children and this lady that keeps on saying that people die here. <laughs> and this ambiguousness actually reminds me of, bad apple callback, Mr. Antolini in The Catcher in the Rye, if we will remember. Holden, towards the end of the book, goes to stay at one of his favorite teacher's place, who was a few drinks in to his highballs, and um, Holden falls asleep on the couch and wakes up to the guy stroking his head. And Holden does not know how to make heads or tails of the whole thing, and um, he doesn't, I mean, it's not just him who doesn't know, but being the reader, it's also some, uh, completely left up to interpretation for us, and... A lot of this book, we're only a couple pages in at this point, a couple chapters, and there is a lot to interpret, like you've been talking about. Oh, yeah. Yep. The governess is delighted when she comes to find that Miles is not only as darling as his younger sister, but seems to be perfectly behaved. Um, You know, she's only seen him from across the street and hasn't talked to him at all, but she's like, oh, yeah, two for two, perfect children. (laughs) Yep. Brushing off the previously made comments by Mrs. Gross and the headmaster at the boys' previous institution, um, he's two for two on Mrs. Gross saying, for one, he's just a little bit of a hellraiser, and like you said, this completely, once again, ambiguous note from the headmaster at the institution saying, this child is bad enough that he is not allowed back, just, we're not going to tell you why and you're not going to ask and let's just leave it at that. The governess and the governess informs Mrs. Gross that she won't dole out any punishment to the alleged ne'er do well, and Mrs. Gross says she will stand by that decision. The encounter ending in the two embracing and kissing, um, huh. kind of out of left field. Another yeah. one of those things. It reminds me of the part in Jekyll and Hyde with. Uh, we talked about it a million times, and I assume we're going to talk about it a million more before the podcast is ever finished. Um, just like Hyde stomping that child. I'm reading this, and I'm understanding what it's saying, but it's coming so out of left field that I do not know 
how to make heads or tails of it. But sure enough, the headmaster and Mrs. Gross embrace and do a little kissy kissy here. <laughs> yeah, they just start making out in front of the children. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, I thank guess. God, you're not going to punish Miles. Uh, and then they just start kissing. I don't know. Things was different back then. <sighs> different times, yeah. The governess is soon swallowed up by her many responsibilities that Bly and notes that the children are providing little to no trouble. Um, maybe a good sign, maybe a bad sign. Maybe she just has her horse blinders on and she's just not paying attention to the trouble. And one day while strolling the grounds of this giant estate, um, she's got one hour of personal time after she puts the kids to bed before she goes to bed herself. And she's fantasizing about meeting her employer, the handsome young bachelor. She just wants to walk around the corner and bump into him randomly, even though... It's obvious that he wants nothing to do with this place or these people, but she just wants to bump into him and be like, oh, you come here often? (laughs) And though her wish isn't entirely granted, part of it is when she does around the corner and comes into view of the house, uh, particularly a tower of the house, and she sees a unfamiliar man standing on top of, like, a balcony. Uh, the balcony only being accessible from the inside of the house. And the governess has a bit of a staring contest with the guy for a few intense moments before the whole thing just completely ends when the man walks from one corner of the house to the other. Huh. They got a stranger living among them. Oh, my God. That's just... See, now... It is a very creepy thing to think about. All that space in the house, you can't possibly keep an eye on every corner at every time. And it's summed up very well. And one of my favorite quotes from the book up to this point being, was there a quote-unquote secret at Bly? A mystery of Adolfo or an insane, an unmentionable relative kept in unsuspected confinement? I can't say how long I turned it over or how long... In a confusion of curiosity and dread, I remained where I had my collision. I only recall that when I re-entered the house, darkness had quite closed in. Oof. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's weird. Like, um, so yeah, she's Chilling. like, yeah, yeah, she's um, starting to see that this is a little creepy. Um and it's interesting to take note that when she's thinking of the handsome uh, ah, estate owner, this guy nice. just randomly appears. You know, she's she's just like, oh, when's he going to come visit? You know, uh, uh, yeah, but he's never going to visit. Um, and then she sees this apparition or like this stranger, this we we just don't know like who this person is and uh one thing that's really uh interesting about the book so far is just how uh it's almost like she's like in a dreamlike state of mind sometimes like this this house sometimes doesn't feel real the children are like almost too perfect even oh. though we know that there's something kind of weird going on with Miles. 
Um, and in the show, the little girl always says, perfectly splendid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> haven't seen that yet in the book, but it's the girl who voiced Peppa Pig. Uh, she She's uh, in Blythe Manor, so maybe, maybe we'll see Peppa Pig appear here in the estate. Uh, that would be very creepy. Can't wait. <laughs> yep. The governess spends more time walking the grounds and trying to wrap her brain around her odd encounter and the reason for Miles' expulsion at the same time. Something about this specific encounter is just kind of making her think about that at the mm-hmm. exact same instance, which, I mean, do the two things go hand in hand? The answer, I'm going to give it right now, absolutely not. There's no relation to the two things. <laughs> or maybe there is. Uh, eventually becoming satisfied with the idea that he was just too sweet and pristine for that filthy school. You know, it's run by heathens, all the kids are little shitheads. She (laughs) just, she knows that the kid is just, you know, making all the other kids look bad. So they just sent him home because, I mean... Why else would they send him home? Honestly, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, he's going. He's going to a public school instead of this private school, and he's just, you know, everyone's sick and tired of hearing about Bly Manor and how creepy it is and how fancy uh. it is and how many ghosts there are. Yep. Uh, Though she still enjoys the company of both children, she can't help but feel an impersonal relationship with both of them, being that they're both. Um, just pretty much uh, surface level in their relationship with her. She does not know anything about these two children, but she's just like, they're both perfect. And I mean, is the idea that she doesn't want to know anything about them. She just isn't hearing anything about them. Once again, walking through uh, sort of dreamlike and on autopilot somewhat, you know, with the horse blinders on, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's a, also surprised me is how little the kids do with the story. You know, there's not too many interactions. Uh, there's just something weird going on. Right. One Sunday, while getting ready for church, the governess is horrified to be greeted by the sight of the very same strange man from the tower peering into her through the window on the ground floor, saying, The day was gray enough. But the afternoon light still lingered, and it enabled me, on crossing the threshold, not only to recognize, on a chair near the wide window, then closed, the articles I wanted, but to become aware of a person on the other side of the window, and looking straight in. Which is just a little taste of the very strange sentence structure given to us through this entire book. Yep. (laughs) How do I break this down? That's like my thoughts of every page. (laughs) Run-on sentences, 17 comments per run-on sentence. Um, But once again, it also uh, lends itself to the book as well. Yeah. Like he could say, um, he could just be trying to say the governess said something, but he's like, the governess opened her mouth and Mm. words came out and flexing they were beautiful her vocal cords. cords. <laughs> yep, the vocal cords vibrated and yep. hence the sound came out and she says like mm. and then she <laughs> kissed Mrs. Gross. Rushing outside to meet the strange man, the governess rounds the corner to find that he has vanished without a trace. And Ooh. standing in his exact position and looking in to see exactly what he'd seen. 
The governess frightens Mrs. Gross, who enters the room in the same exact manner the governess had just moments before. Um, mm. And the governess makes sure to mention at this point, too, that she's not only startled that she startled Mrs. Gross and from the encounter in general, but Mrs. Gross has a particularly horrified look on her face that just startles her on top of also just seeing this weird dude outside the window. Because she's basically looking inside the way he was looking inside, right? Same exact way. She stands exactly where he was standing, and she wants to see exactly what he could see from his point of view moments before. And she's just zoning out, like, looking right through Mrs. Gross. Or oh, my God. Probably not even noticing her at all. Ooh. Mrs. Gross, still trembling from the odd encounter, questions the governess about the odd situation. Still in shock, the governess informs Mrs. Gross that she'll stay back from church to attend and keep an eye on the house instead of going, and spills the beans on not only the exact encounter she just happened, but the encounter from a few days before of seeing the same dude standing on the tower only accessible from inside the house. Mm. Mrs. Gross questions the governess of the man's appearance and has a startled look of recognition on her face when she's told that the man has red hair and a pale face. And um, more specifically, she's also told that he's got like the look of an actor, which I guess I don't know what that look is, but I suppose it might have been she, a little more refined back in the day. She's just basically saying, yeah, the actor, he, act, this actor is handsome, Who? but he's got to get out of this house because guess what this this house is not a stage he's uh, creeping me out <laughs> yeah but basically she's just crushing on this guy mrs gross claims that the man could be none other than peter quint the man that was in charge of bly the previous year right up to his untimely death whoa all right gotta head out mrs gross this was fun but yep. uh, not having fun. No, not having a bit of fun. Nope. In, in a moment of strange but strangely certain clarity, the governess tells Gross that Quint had been looking for miles. She doesn't know why she knows this, but she can just, once again, she has a strange moment of clarity during this situation, wondering why neither child had ever mentioned him before. Questioning Gross about the man... She's informed that Quint had been, quote-unquote, too free with Miles. That is literally the only explanation we get. Yep. Once again, left completely ambiguous, but all signs turn to, you know, exactly what you're thinking of when you hear that. Yeah, like it. We don't know if it's, uh, if he was having sex with another girl right in front of Miles, or if he was sexually abusing Miles, or letting Miles know about sex in general, like telling him the birds and the bees. Um, Too free. Yeah, we we just, that's all we get. But there are many, like, sexual undertones in this book, and that's probably the most uh, plausible thing. And that's why I said that at school why he's been kicked out is probably something to do with uh sex like whether he was 
telling the secrets of the birds and the bees to the other students, which this is Victorian England. Like you don't you don't talk about that. Or um, maybe he did something sexual to another student or maybe revealed himself. We just don't know. That's Henry James for you. He's going to leave you guessing all day. Tossing and turning later that night, the governess can't help but feel that Gross had left out a very important detail in the entire situation. Feeling protective of the children, the governess watches Flora as she attempts to create a small wooden boat on the shore of a body of water attached to Bly. Mm. After some time, the governess, and only the governess, becomes eerily aware of a visitor in the presence of her and the child, and shifts her gaze in the unknown entity's direction. And that is where we will pick back up next week with Henry James's The Turn of the Screw Part 2. And, I mean, that's exactly where the chapter ends, too. She does not um, elaborate at this entity at all. She just knows that they are not alone. Which is, once again, not only ambiguous, but it's pretty spooky. Yep, very spooky. You know, the governess, she thought she was going to have it easy. I'm just going to watch two perfect children. But now we don't. We not only have one ghost, we got two ghosts or two apparitions, two something, uh, two figures that just are appearing out of nowhere. Um, so, yeah, it's what's going on here. We Once again, too, just don't know. optimism is nice, but... If it's too good to be true, then it probably is. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you gotta investigate the warning signs, uh, but... Uh, it's yeah, probably a little I, too late for that. Yep, exactly. So we'll we'll continue this little horror mystery next week. So, I hope everyone at home is titillated, because I know I certainly am. Yeah, I mean, it definitely took... This is another hard read. It's definitely taking more, uh, you know, j- just like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I need to kind of get a summary of what's going on and interpret what's going on between the lines. Because there's so much subtleness. There's so much ambiguity. There, It's just a lot of mystery and a lot of, um, well, there's a lot of hints at sexual repression. So, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. And, yeah, I'm excited to see how Henry James just will uh, wrap this thing up and continue, well, I guess expand first. (laughs) Right. Uh, The conclusion is not... Actually, as we've talked about since the beginning, this is so ambiguous that that's actually the end of the book. Um, (laughs) Thank you for tuning in for another series discussion episode next week. New series after that. You know how it goes. Yeah, we're Um, pulling the full Henry James on (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Now, other than the ambiguousness and sexuality of this, was there anything else that you wanted to discuss before we wrapped a bow up on this first part of our exciting new series? Not not for the book itself, but um, if you haven't seen on our Instagram, we uh, have announced our website. We got a website, thebadapplebookclub.com. Go there to see what episodes we've been producing. But I mean, if you're already listening, you have your own podcast app. But uh, you can also contact us through that website. You can also, my favorite part, get some merch. So 
yeah, just uh, if you want to, you can check it out. So we got stickers, we got posters, um, coffee cups. I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get a coffee mug myself. Um, so yeah, that that's about it. The Instagram is the Bad Apple Book Club. Go ahead and follow us over there if you want to. Um, as always, thanks for listening. And come back next week if you want. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Trouble with that podcast, you call me. Of course. You know, oh, yeah. I can always do nothing with it. <laughs>